Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Good morning. My name is Roy. Uh, today's uh, scripture reading is from Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. If you would just please follow along in your Bibles. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he had said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Let us pray. Father of God, we come to you today. We adore you for who you are, and we confess our sins, and we bring a sacrifice of praise into your house. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. We're so glad that you're here with us. And I have the special privilege today of introducing you uh, to a guy named Eric Swan. Eric is part of the Relational Discipleship Network. It's a, uh, a network that we are a part of as a church uh, that helps us stay on track as a church that wants to make disciples of Jesus who know how to make disciples of Jesus. And so uh, as a part of that, I coach some other churches along that way to help us all pursue that goal. And uh, Eric is one of the guys in our micro network that I coach and I've gotten to know him over the last several years. He's a fantastic guy. Uh, Eric is planting a church right now in the Murfreesboro area called uh, Restoration Church. And so he and his wife Molly and their two daughters are going to be here with us this morning. The girls will be here for the second service. They're hanging out at the hotel this morning getting some rest. But, uh, but I wanted you to meet Eric. He has a, a passionate heart for Jesus, loves discipling others and helping them walk with him to know how to also make disciples of Jesus. And so, uh, so Eric is here this morning. We kind of gave him a hard time. I said, man, you're planting a church right now. You're not doing anything on Sundays. So uh, come and be with us. They are in the stage right now of building their church through small groups and getting to a point where they will launch their church publicly uh, when they'll do Sunday gatherings like we do. But in the meantime, doing a lot of small group activity and investing in people's lives through small groups. So uh, would you please help me welcome Eric as he brings our message this morning. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, it, it really is an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, as Joel said, you know, I've gotten the privilege to get to know him the last few years. The church I was at previously as an executive pastor is the church that sent me to go plant, and we were in Joel's micro network uh, coaching group as well. So it's been several years now that I've gotten to know Joel, um, been coached by him, and, and coaching kind of has this feeling of like, like we're sitting around and Joel's like, how do we get more people in your small groups? How do we get more people in your church? 
like that sort of coaching. Um, what's sweet is, is our, man, we're on every other week Zoom call with four other pastors, and, and we're talking about our own journey as disciple makers first, our own journey as disciples of Jesus first, uh, before we talk about our roles as pastors and our jobs in a church. And so we've shed a lot of tears together. Uh, we've celebrated for one another. Um, even these last few times we've been getting together, we've talked about the lies that we believe and how those lies show up in, in our relationships and how they show up in the decisions we make as church leaders. And it's been some pretty powerful conversations. And so when Joel talks about coaching, I want you guys to understand what that means. Um, it's, it's a lot of pastoring and shepherding that he's provided for me and the other guys in the group. So I know you guys know Joel's awesome, uh, but Joel's awesome. Okay, take it from another guy. Um, so as, as Joel said, I've got um, a, a wife, Molly, and uh, two little girls, Addison and Ansley. Uh, we've been up here since uh, Friday night. My wife grew up in elementary school. She lived in Abingdon. Doesn't have any family connections there anymore, but she wanted to take the girls and go see all where she was born and where she lived her childhood and where she went to elementary school. So we did all that yesterday, which was a lot of fun. And she also went to Bays Mountain a lot as a kid. So we're going there today. My kids are, they think they're going to Disney World. So <laughs> don't, if you have lower expectations, do not lower them for my kids when they're here. Um, but Addison is nine. She's in third grade. Ansley is six. She's a kindergartner. I have a nickname for Ansley. I call her Daisy, okay? And not like, you're a Daisy if you do, not like Doc Holliday, Daisy, but like Daisy, D-A-Z-E, like in a daze. Why? Daisy. Because she will get in a daze doing anything. This girl's imagination is so strong, and whatever's going on up here is so powerful that she can, she can daze out, doze out at any moment. Um, not just like when she's watching TV. When she's in the corner reading a book, or when she's in the corner playing with a doll or doing something in her imagination. I've got videos on my phone where I'm just sitting there videoing her in the corner of the room. She is like looking all around where I am and not even aware I'm there, just in imagination world talking to herself. And so I'll have to walk over in front of her and be like, I'll be like, Ansley, hey, Ansley, Ansley. I have to be like, Ansley, like say it in a weird way. And then she's like, huh, what? Oh, you were talking to me. I'm like, yeah, I've been talking to you for a while. Um, but Daisy is out of it. And so today we're going to look at some stories. We're going to look at a one story, one scene in the, in the book of Luke. We're in Luke 14, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. Um, and this is an example of just like the, actually really similar to the story we just heard in, in Luke 13. It's on a Sabbath. It's with Pharisees. A little different setting. But I want to challenge us with something. If you've, if you've grown up, if you're familiar with Scripture, if you've been around the Bible for a while, if you've read the Gospels for a while, you know you read a story with Jesus and the Pharisees, and it's like good guy and bad guys. And we can look at the Pharisees and tend to be like, that's the enemy, and they are. They're the opponents, they're the enemy. But there's a temptation I feel when I read stories with the Pharisees where I think, oh, these are, these are the dummies, and my job is to read this story and go, stupid Pharisees. Golly, they don't get it. Um, I think... The challenge for me and the challenge for you today is as we look into the scriptures, as we look at these parables Jesus is going to tell, is, is to find yourself in the story, to find yourself maybe in the attitudes of the Pharisees, uh, to find yourself in, in their predispositions and what they're caught up in, because the things they struggle with, I think we'll see today, are the things that we can all struggle with. So just like I kind of have to get in front of my daughter's face sometimes and be like, hey, talking to you. Um, let's see if the Holy Spirit this morning in this story is what's kind of get in front of our face and go, hey, Talking to you, okay? 
Um, and we'll also, like I said, look at a, a couple of parables. And what, what's beautiful about a parable is it's a real-life story, real-life um, example that has moral application, but also eternal application. So it's another really great, I think anytime we approach a parable, there's a so what in there for each and every one of us. So again, regardless of how familiar you are with the story or who you think the characters are, uh, I want to encourage all of us to, to engage um, in the story. And so we're going to start, I'm going to read through verses one through six. There's kind of like one, again, it's one scene and there's three different parts that we're going to break down. So verses one through six of Luke 14 says, one Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them, he said, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him, from the, pull him out on the Sabbath day. And they could find no answer to these things. Um, so think, think, I didn't know what passage we're going to read beforehand, so I'm really glad it was Luke 13. Because what's great is that it gives you the context a little bit. The context of this is that this is not the first interaction that Jesus has had with the Pharisees on a Sabbath. In fact, this has come up a couple of times already in Luke's gospel, and it comes up other times in other gospels, where there is conflict around what the Pharisees believe you can and cannot do on a Sabbath. And so you look at verse, in verse 1, it says they were watching him closely. Now, they weren't watching him closely to be like, I really want to get to know this guy, right? They were watching him trying to, to catch him. Uh, the, the, the Greek language kind of uh, indicates almost like a, like a spy, like kind of hiding around the corner, like, oh, I'm going to get you, I'm going to catch you. We're going to see what you're going to do, and then we're going to go, ha-ha, got him. So they're observing him closely, and then and even in verse 2, by the way, it says, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Even the way Luke writes that, there in front of him, almost like he appears, again, indicates they put this guy there. This Pharisee, this leading Pharisee, hosts a party host a dinner on the Sabbath. And in this dinner meal, he invites Jesus. So there's part of the trap. Part of the trap is it's a Sabbath. We're going to have Jesus here. We know he does things we don't like on the Sabbath. In fact, we're going to put someone sick in front of him because we've already had this conflict over healing on the Sabbath. Now he kind of put us in our place before, so I don't know what they were expecting to happen. But they still did it. They, they set a trap, okay? And so dropsy, your, your translation may say dropsy says swollen with fluid. This is a probably a heart condition, a lung condition. Being swollen with fluid is not the disease, it's the symptom of the disease. So this guy had some sort of physical ailment that was causing swelling in his body. <clears throat> and so they, even though they had had several interactions like this already, they threw this situation back in his face again. But I think this is why we see Jesus doesn't do what he's done before and, and then heal the guy and then wait for the interaction. He just goes, hey, you guys tell me, is it okay for me to do this? Right? He just throws it right back on them. Right away, in verse 3, he says, uh, in response, Jesus asked the law expert, in response. So he sees this guy, and he's responding immediately. I know what you guys want me to do. You put a, you put a sick guy in front of me on the Sabbath. You think I'm going to act different maybe in a house, in the synagogue. I don't know what you think. You guys tell me, is it lawful to do this? They don't say a word. They stay silent. Um, then he heals them, and he heals them, and he says very, something very similar to what he said in Luke 13, 
which is which of you whose, whose son or ox falls in a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. But I want to point something out about the attitude of the Pharisees. This is kind of the pattern that they follow with Jesus. What we see in the interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees is they're consistent trying to, um, trying to, to catch him messing up based on what they say, based on what they value, based on what they think is the, is the epitome of spirituality. And for them, that meant don't do anything on the Sabbath. Don't work at all. That's, that's one of their laws God told us in his word, which is true. But they, if you, you guys may know this about the Pharisees, they would take things and say, well, if this is what the law is, we need to kind of move over here and stay even further away from what the line is so that we really, really don't do anything wrong. And there's old rabbinic teaching dating back to the time of Jesus that says, well, here's what you can and can't do on a Sabbath, and it's down to the letter. In fact, there's one rabbi that says, oh, you can, you can get, yeah, you, God also commands us in his word to take care of animals that we see as sick and dying. It's our responsibility. And to do that for people too, obviously. So if you see somebody hurt, you can pull them. Then this other rabbi comes along and goes, actually, hold on. You can uh, put like a blanket or a pillow under the ox's head and get him some food or water and then get him out the next day. So this was like actual, you can go find it. It's in the, in the Talmud. It's, re, it's religious teaching of the time of these Pharisees that they didn't even know what to do with this. So Jesus says, but listen, I don't really care what you think you believe. I know what you would do. You'd help somebody, Right? So he's, he's addressing these things, but again, I want to point out the, the attitude of the Pharisees. The attitude of the Pharisees is this perspective of they're trying to just catch Jesus messing up. They're looking for him to mess up and go, oh, see, there it is, you're disqualified. The thing is, we don't have Pharisees. We haven't interacted with Pharisees in our culture, but I know enough about, I mean, I've, I've grown up in a, in a large portion of my life in the church. Uh, we kind of are in the Bible Belt, kind of the buckle of the Bible Belt down here in Tennessee. What I know is that all of us have been affected by these sort of people, people that are always looking for a, oh, going to catch you, oh, going to get you, oh, look what you did, oh, want to talk about that. Um, in fact, uh, this isn't just in religious circles anymore. It's kind of our whole culture, Right? This is where the term cancel culture comes from. We, I don't care what political side of the aisle you're on. I don't care if you're religious or irreligious. I don't care if you're a Christian or secular. We live in this culture that is always looking for what's that thing? What's that thing that I can go, oh, I don't like that, so I'm out. Right? We deal with it every political season, which is now 24-7, 365 is the political season. Um, we deal with it when celebrities say the wrong thing online and companies come along and cancel them, or we see it with, with pastors. We see it with pastors that, that, may, that may say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and either society or the church comes along and goes, ah, can't deal with that. You're out. We don't, we don't really like you anymore. I've liked 99% of what you've done, but you said that now? Well, now go burn that guy's books. We, this is the culture that, 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 in a lot of ways, again, both secular and Christian cultures do this. Here's a great example. Uh, Thursday morning, I was at a men's group for one of the men's group we're starting for our church. I was kind of, it's a men's group, it's a small group, but I was kind of ranting as I'm prone to do. And I uh, was ranting, I was just saying like, you know, there's all these one another commands in scripture. There's 59 one another commands to love one another, forgive one another, um, fellowship with one another, confess your sins to one another, cast one, um, uh, let's see, bear one another's burdens love one another, speak the truth to one another in love. 
really difficult things. And I said, somewhere along the way in the church, we've decided that what I believe matters way more than how I treat people. And so, like, if I believe in the virgin birth, that's something we got to make sure we all believe in the virgin birth. But confess your sins one another. Guys, I know that's hard. So we kind of give each other some grace on that. Now, right now, I feel this temptation to me to say this to you, because I said it to them, was like, now, I'm not saying we don't need to believe in the virgin birth, right? The guy in my group goes, why do you feel like you need to say that? I think we all believe in the virgin birth. I'm sure you believe in the virgin birth. You're a, you're a pastor. I know you well enough. I said, what, why did you feel like you needed to protect yourself and say, I'm not saying we don't need to believe in the virgin birth. And I don't know if it's just because this story was on my mind, but I was like, because I've had several times where I've walked off a stage after teaching and someone goes, ooh, you know, you didn't say this. Did you mean to say that? And they come along kind of like, oh, like a little bit of a check mark. Oh, gotcha, caught you. You didn't say, should have said. And it's like a, a, this trigger in me where I feel like I got to like put up all the, like I'm, I'm kind of like, as I'm talking, I'm like, huh, huh. You know, like dodging all the, all the accusations. Um, <clears throat> the real danger in this, though, I, I'm not here to address why we do this in society and why we do this in the church. The real danger for some of us, if we're honest, is that this is seeped into the way that we view God. This is seeped into the way that we think God looks at us. Um, we have a little, one of your, your first fill-in-the-blank slide says this, many of us believe in a gotcha God. If we're honest, we think God is either standing there with his arms crossed or honestly more likely like with a a clipboard and a pen. Hmm. What are you doing over there? Hmm. I mean, that's not like technically sin, but it's not, I don't like it. Not good. We grow up, some of us were raised to believe this, some of us just believe it because we're around enough people that act this way, where we start to believe that this is who God is. He's a gotcha God. He is looking for reasons to find something wrong or to, or to, to tick our check boxes for what we've done wrong. In fact, I think a lot of us have lived our spiritual life, I did for a long time, like this, and you're gonna acknowledge this feeling. You know when you're driving? And all of a sudden, police is behind you. He just pulls out of the store. I don't know what he's doing. Um, but his lights aren't on. He's just right behind you. And you just change lanes casually, and he changes lanes casually too. Right? Man, it's 10 and 2, right? It's blinker. Blinker off. Back to 10 and 2. If the speed limit is 45, I'm going like 44.5 because I'm not going to go too slow, because that's suspicious. But if I go speed at all, it's a reason to pull me over. Um, and we, we know that you guys can hopefully identify with that feeling. A lot of us think God's like that. In fact, we've lived most of our Christian life seeing God the way the Pharisees, I think, saw God. As someone always looking for you to mess up so they can go, mm, did that again. But then Jesus comes along, and, 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 and every interaction with the Pharisees exposes that God's not the way the Pharisees think he is, that God's not the way a lot of us think he is, that he's not a God sitting there with a clipboard or his lights off ready to get you or his arms crossed looking for you to mess up in disapproval. He's totally different. In fact, he, he, he's not a ref with a whistle. In fact, Jesus came and took on flesh and lived a sinless life, that a real human life the way you and I live, 
and died for you so that you can experience God the Father the way he really is. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way we are yet without sin. So because Jesus came and took on flesh, he didn't just take on flesh because he needed to live a human life, but he actually lived a full human life, full of every sort of temptation we'll face. He didn't sin, but he felt the same hurts and pains that we do. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive grace and mercy, sorry, mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. In light of what Jesus has done for you, God says in his word, the reality of how we should view God is when we mess up, when we fail, when we struggle, when we hurt, we don't come in the throne room. We don't approach the presence of God head bowed like this, knowing that we're going to be facing a God like this. We run in, bust open the doors into the presence of God, knowing that we're going to find grace and mercy in time of need. We go in boldly. I love boldly, right? That's like chest out, head held high. Like I'm walking into a safe place when I walk in the presence of God. God is not a gotcha God. He's not the God of the Pharisees. He's not the God that a lot of us have come to believe in, and he's not the God that has been reinforced in us by a lot of religious traditions. He's a God who is willing and looking to accept us in the midst of our need for him. Um, So let's go on to the next part of the story, because now we're going to really get the scene. Verse 7 says, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. So setting the scene, Jesus is at this dinner party. And what he notices is as people are coming in, they're like, ooh, where's the best seat? Where's the best seat? Now, you and I think dinner party, we think uh, out here in the gathering area, there's round tables everywhere, right? And we're like trying to, uh, who don't want to sit with, right? Sometimes for some of us, the best seat's like, I'm a back row Baptist, right? And for some of us, it's like, I want to be up front where the action is. Well, the place of honor in this setting, they set at a U-shaped table, Some of you are familiar with this. They would sit at a U-shaped table. The host would sit at the head of the table. And everyone would kind of like, you'll see Jesus talking about reclining. Everyone would kind of sit on the ground and kind of like lean over towards their left. And so the the place of honor was right beside the host. You'd kind of lean on the host. Um, And so he was watching as people were coming in. They're like, people are coming to this leading Pharisee's party. You get invited by the leading Pharisee to a dinner. You go sit by the leading Pharisee if you can. And it it brought to mind this illustration. And here's what he goes with. He says in verse 8, When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, pause. This isn't a wedding banquet. This is a Sabbath meal. Why is he talking about a wedding banquet? Well, he's talking about a wedding banquet, and and there's several reasons, but I think one of the reasons is he's bringing to mind an idea of eternity, um, an idea of the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's bringing this idea of eternity to them, and you're like, well, they didn't have revelation. How would they know this? This idea of of the wedding supper was still prominent in Jewish teaching. In fact, at the end of the story, a verse that we're not looking at in verse 15, um, after Jesus tells these parables, one of the guys there responds and says, blessed is the one who will eat in the kingdom of God. So they know when he says wedding feast, he's shifting their attention. I'm gonna tell a parable, but we're gonna talk about a wedding feast just so you know I'm not just talking about now. (laughs) Okay, tell a parable, but I said wedding feast, right? Wedding feast. So it gets their minds going in a different direction. So he says in verse verse, uh, eight, uh, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, 
Give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. That's embarrassing, right? You think, oh, I'm sitting up here up front by the leading Pharisee. And all of a sudden, like the second leading Pharisee walks in and the leading Pharisee goes, um, and you're in his spot. And now everybody else is here. Where are you going to go? You're not going to make somebody else move. So you got to get up in front of everybody at the party and walk to the last table. Um, my, wet, my, my sister's wedding, I remember there was one of the groomsmen and bridesmaids. They didn't have enough seats at the wedding party table up at the front of the, and they had to like sit two of the couples over at a different table by themselves. And they were so worried that they were going to be so embarrassed. Now they didn't care. I mean, they're just volunteer firefighters from McMinnville. Like, <laughs> whatever, man. Um, but they, like th- this idea is, this would be embarrassing for any of us. If you think you're at the seat of honor and then you got to get up in front of everybody and go to the back or go to like the table by the punch bowl or whatever in our party's terms, like you got to go sit over there. Jesus says, That's, that would be really embarrassing. But then in verse 10, he says, there's a better outcome. When you are invited, go and recline. Remember, recline, they're sitting on the ground in the lowest place. So that when the one who invites you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. There's a better outcome. There, there, there's, hey, listen, if you go sit in a lower place than you really deserve, then you're entitled to, lower place than you want to start out at, then when, when the host comes, he'll be like, hey, yeah, you come up here. And that's way better than having to move down. It's embarrassing to move down. It's kind of honoring to be moved up. So there's a point to this, right? It's a parable. Well, Jesus gets to the point, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be, exalt, will be exalted. Jesus, again, is telling a, a parable, and he's telling about the wedding feast, talking about eternity. And here's, here's another way to kind of say what Jesus said. When you focus on the here and now, when you focus on, on getting the place of position that you want in your life, and valuing and prioritizing that over all things, what you can attain, obtain your position relative to others, the way these guys were in this example of the, of the party, of the meal. When you're focused on honor here and now, honor here and now, honor on this earth is so, so fickle. Again, think about our cancel culture. Think about the world we see now. Everything comes and goes so quick. Again, look at Washington, D.C. and prominent celebrities and and pastors in the, in, the, in the public sphere. When honor is the goal, when honor is the target, when honor is the aspiration, when we want to be honored, when we want the valuable seat at the table, all that can go away like that. And Jesus says, that's, that's true of now. It's super embarrassing to think you deserve something and all of a sudden you got to walk to the end of the table. But it's also true in eternity. Um, your, next, your next fill in the blank says this, when you humble yourself here, God will honor that in eternity. When you humble yourself here, God will honor that in eternity. But when you humble, I mean, when you honor yourself here, it will lead to humiliation here and in eternity. There is humiliation 
that comes when we try to honor ourselves. Again, we see this every day in the way the world works, but we also, Jesus says, this is going to be true at the wedding feast. At the wedding feast, if you sought to nothing but honor yourself here, there will be humiliation in that time. You... Never mind. I was going to go down a rabbit hole trail, but I'm not. Um, again, when you focus on the here and now, what you can obtain, obtain, those things can go away so quickly. They can disappear in the snap of a finger. Real honor, real honor is not something to be seized or grasped. Real honor can only be given. Real honor can only be given. This is a fundamental question that you and I have to wrestle with as disciples of Jesus. Do I want honor here and now that comes from the fickle and the fading applause of men? Or do I want honor given by the only one who can actually give honor? God. What do I want? What am I going to desire? What am I going to, what am I going to live for? Um, Daryl Bach, who uh, is a um, seminary professor, one of my professors I had and an author, says this uh, on your next fill-in-the-blank side, I believe. Jesus' disciples are marked by humility. Humility is a characteristic that is seen on, on a disciple of Jesus. He goes on to say, Jesus' disciples are marked by humility. And this picture parable shows that Jesus regards this attitude as fundamental to discipleship. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without an attitude and a characteristic of humility. So that was a parable illustration as Jesus is looking around this party. That's a parable and illustration about how humility um, should affect the way we see ourselves and how we position ourselves. But now he's going he's gonna to pivot because he sees something else going on at this party. And he's going to address how uh, humility plays out in how we see others. Look at verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> he also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, so now I love this. He looks at the crowd and he's like, hmm, Okay, and he just kind of tells a parable, I think, to his disciples that are with him and to maybe the crowd hears. And now he just turns to important Pharisee number one, who's hosting. And I'm assuming this means Jesus is close to him at the table, right? If the party's already happening, people are seated. He's going to turn and he's going to say, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. <laughs> he's like pointing around the room. Don't invite your friends, your relatives, your brothers, your sisters, your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. Instead, on the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind. So Jesus starts talking to the Pharisee that invited him, and, and, he, and he says, you know, just like your guests are kind of positioning for their place at the table, by inviting these people you're inviting, you're positioning for your place too. You're only looking to invest in relationships for what you can get out of it. You're only looking to invite those who can invite you back. Um, another, a commentator I read said that in ancient culture, the one who hosted a festive meal would be placed on the invitation list for future meals at the guest homes. This was a tit-for-tat in the ancient culture. Guys, it's not different than how we live now, 
right? You think about being invited to someone's party or being invited to something to someone's house. The temptation, the feeling is like, I need to invite them to my place. I feel this with kids' birthday parties. Think about like it's my daughter's fifth birthday and it's like, man, all right, we're going to do low key this year. We're going to invite like four kids. And it's like, well, you know, Susie invited her to her party though. It'd be mean for Susie. Susie's mom will not be happy if we don't invite Susie, right? We kind of do this like socialite debutante thing, even when we're just <laughs> not that way. Um, we we, we kind of do this tit for tat and how we invite people to parties. This was the same there. And so Jesus is telling these guys, he's like, listen, you, you're, you're, you're living, you're, you're investing in these people, you're inviting these people only for what you get out of it. In fact, you should be inviting just the opposite sort of people. You should be inviting just the sort of people who can't give you anything in return. The downcast of, the, of society, the poor, maimed, lame, or blind that can't honor you with a banquet at their own home. And he says this in verse 14, he says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Hmm. So in other words, Jesus said the result is they'll be blessed. They'll be blessed by, not invite, by inviting people that can't return the favor, but they're not going to be invest he, blessed here. You won't be able to get a repayment here. This isn't going to boost your social credit score here. But there is blessing. And again, Jesus shifts the focus, right, from the here and now, what's right in front of our face to, what about eternity? What about the resurrection of the righteous? What about what we sang about earlier, the 10,000 years and then forevermore? What about that moment? If you're looking towards that moment and that's when you want the blessings, then you're not going to invite the ones that can just repay you now. You're going to invite and you're going to pour into and you're going to give in relationship to people that can't give back. This is just another example of your next fill-in-the-blank slide. This is just another example of what Jesus continues to say in, this, in these, these two parables, that humility on earth is honor in eternity. So he says these two parables, how we see other people and how we see ourselves, how humility changes the way those two, how we interact with ourselves and other people. And he says humility is so important, and I'm reading these commentators, right? Humility is a key characteristic of discipleship. The question we should be asking at this point is why does God value humility so much? Like, I know he does, but why? Like, I see that he rewards humility and he honors it and he promises eternal honors and rewards for humility now, but why? Why does he care so much about humility? Let's go back to what we said earlier. Remember that, that, that Jesus' disciples are marked by humility. Why is that true? Why is that an essential characteristic of a disciple? This isn't in your notes. I didn't send it to the lovely team here. should have. That's my fault. Um, but you should still write it down. <laughs> Any lack of humility in me this is, why God, this is why God wants us to value humility so much and walk in a life of humility. Any, any lack of humility in me, I believe, reveals a lack of belief in the gospel in me. Now, I don't mean like I'm not saved. I don't mean I'm, that, that's not what I mean. I mean a lack of understanding of, of, and a lack of walking in light of the gospel in me. When I am aware of and focused on the truth of the gospel, humility is the only right response. Because think about the gospel. 
right? Think about the songs we sing and the words we say in the gospel. Think about the, pa- the, the passages of scripture for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for me and you. When we had nothing to give for it. I don't know, haven't checked with Joel on if y'all are okay with their song, Reckless Love. It's okay. <laughs> some, some churches are, some churches aren't. Either way, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. So you give yourself away. The core message of the gospel is I cannot, but he did anyway. That's the core, that is at the very core message of the gospel. And so if I'm going to live that out, if I'm gonna live like the recipient of unmerited favor from God, I should be a distributor of unmerited favor to others. I should be a distributor of grace. And that, that looks like me walking in humility in a place that may be lower than I think I want when I walk into a room, a place um, of serving others for what they get out of it, not for what I get out of it. Again, the same commentator, Daryl Box, says this, those who are truly humble persons recognize their desperate need for God, not any right to blessing. Those who are truly humble persons recognize their desperate need for God. Deep-seated, desperate need. Uh, reading through the Gospels recently, and really I've been in the Gospels the last several years. I just keep circling back through them. And one thing I noticed reading Luke this last time was that the ones he heals, the ones that receive the ministry from him are the ones that fall down on their face, desperate. And I don't think God ever wants me to lose the place of desperation. Tom Constable is another commentator I read a lot. And he says, the reason one should humble himself is that someone else, let's go back to this analogy. Let's go back to the very first when Jesus says, hey, when the one who invited you shows up, Dr. Constable says, the reason one should humble himself is that someone else has invited him. He is the guest, not the host. A person's position in the kingdom depends on God, not on his own self-seeking. This is why humility, I believe, is the essential key to the Christian life. I think we approach anything from anything different than a place of humility, we're going to miss the point. I think to be a disciple of Jesus, a disciple maker of Jesus, a good husband, a, a godly father, a pastor, a whatever it is you do vocationally, the way to walk that out in the Christian life is walking in a place of humility. Guys, I'm planning a church, as Joel said. Um, I'm not one of these guys that always thought he's going to be a church planner. I didn't realize that God was calling me to plant a church until he did. And then I was like, I don't know what to do. And I thought at some point, these, I mean, this has been over a year that this process has been going on, that I'd get to a point of like, now I know what to do. And I wake up every day and I don't know what to do. And what's been so sweet about it, the thing that I don't really know what God's going to do in our church, I'm, I'm praying for him to go before us. I end up in a place of a couple places of prayer. God, this has to be your work. If you're with me, I'm good. If not, I don't want to do it. But it brings us back. It brings me, my wife, my kids, Noah, who's planting with me, my, my, my best friend. It brings us to this place over and over again of like, God, I don't know what to do. I am desperate. And he brings, God brings me to that place over and over again. He lets me walk down the path a little bit of like, I got all the answers. <laughs> Not like this, right? Not waiting for me to mess up, but like, all right, man. Okay, now, you realize you can't do it? Okay, good. Let's do this. I think humility 
is the central key component of the Christian life. So I've got four, um, four applications, implications of, of this, this passage of Scripture I want to go through, and this will be kind of reviewing where we've been. Number one, remember the attitude of the Pharisees when Jesus asked them a question. says, but they kept silent. God is not a gotcha God. He values relationship with you over your mistakes. It's why he died and rose again for you. If, there, if I could wave a magic wand on every believer I've ever come in contact with and make them believe one thing, it would be this. I think the most dangerous thing in the Christian life is when we believe in a gotcha God, not a God who allows us to enter his throne room boldly. So please read and memorize Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 like I did a long time ago because um, it's changed my life. If you have any issues with how God sees you um, and how you see him and how to approach him, I want to challenge you and encourage you that I think that's his next step for you today. Next, fill in the blank slide, says they might invite you back. That's, remember, this is why the, the lead Pharisee wanted to invite other people because they might invite you back. A focus on this world will only ever lead to pride and self-protection. If you look at the Pharisees, if you look at what, in, what, what there was clearly in their interactions with Jesus, what painted their life, as they only focused on this world and what they could get out of every relationship, as, they, as these people at the party showed up and where they wanted to put themselves, it, it only led to a place of pride and self-protection. If all I have is this world, I have to be better than you. And I don't even have to be that competitive to want to feel that way because I got to feel okay about myself. So if all I've got is this world, I have to prove that I'm better than you. And if that looks like me achieving more than you, that's fine. But also if it looks like taking you down a couple notches, I'll do that too. I just got to end up better than you on this ladder, this imaginary ladder we're all climbing, if all I've got is this world. And by the way, the second piece of that, if all I have is this world and I've got to be better than you, that means I've got to hide every flaw and mistake you could ever find in me. I got to protect myself at all costs. Can't be transparent, honest, vulnerable with anybody. That's scary and that will, that will knock me down a couple of pegs. Again, if all I've got is this life. So when we find our place, ourselves in places of pride and self-protection, I promise you we're not focused on eternity promise. Next, you will be blessed. Again, the promise Jesus makes to the, to the host of the party. You invite people who can't invite you back, there will be a blessing in eternity. A focus on eternity puts me in a mindset of humility, and that's a life God rewards and honors. When I understand the gospel and a, and a desire to live for the promises of eternity, humility is the only thing that makes sense. And finally, when the one who invited you comes, again, this is a party that we didn't throw. Eternal life, eternity, life with God, relationship with him is a party that me and you did not throw. It's something we're invited to. Serving those that cannot repay us models the character of the God who served us when we couldn't repay him. It models the character of God. This is why God cares about humility so much. It shows God's character to the world. We sang earlier, worship your holy name. You read the Psalms. There's a lot about, uh, I proclaim your name to the nations. 
I worship your name. Name doesn't mean like, David wasn't saying like, I go to other nations, like I go to Lebanon and I'm like, Yahweh, I proclaimed your name. Name means the same thing it does in some of our vernacular. It means character, right? Like to have a good name is a good reputation and a character. When we talk about seeing the name, we talk about praising the name, we're talking about God's character. This is how when we do this, when we walk in humility, when we serve others for what they get out of it, not for what we get out of it, and we desire to not seek our own honor, we put others first, we model the name of God to this world. It's how Jesus lived. It's what Jesus taught. And I believe it's what he's calling us to live today. As we sang earlier, The prayer of our heart should be for God to show us who he is, to fill us with his heart, and to lead us in that love to those around us. That's what real humility looks like. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.